In this podcast, Pamela Barty, a Forbes 30 under 30 entrepreneur and developer of a $100 million real estate empire, will share her inspiring underdog comeback story. And along with those of her guests, she'll share how you too, as an underdog, can rise up and succeed against all odds. Here's your host, Pamela Barty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Underdog. Today, I have a very special guest here with me, Janice. Janice, how are you? Thank you, Pamela, for having me on the podcast. Oh, it is such an honor, and I'm so excited to get into your story and your amazingness and awesomeness, like we just talked about, the network of awesomeness. I can't wait to hear all about your story. So I guess the opening question would be, you know, what led you on your journey to where you are today? Well, my daughter has a hearing loss. And when she was diagnosed, the doctor said there were special schools for her. And my idea of special was not their idea of special. And I wasn't going to allow them to limit her dreams. Mm -hmm. And so I decided that it was easier to change the world than to change my standards. And so I set up on this course of fixing problems that impacted our family. Mm. And the next thing I knew I had developed a program, but it wasn't as if I set upon this with this grand master plan, it evolved very organically based on our family's needs. Now there's a plan, but there wasn't a plan before. Interesting. So how did you go about making the first cycle of, of change? Cause that's a, that's a big endeavor that you just mentioned. You're like, I want to change the world rather than change the standards, which I think is so powerful. So how, what was sort of the first step in that you recognize like something is wrong with this? You know. Well, I, I think it started with the doctor and then we would go to, we live in New York City. And so we would go to cultural venues because you can't live in New York and not take advantage of the culture. I mean, that's the whole reason to live here is the vast amazingness of New York City. And so we would go places and things would be broken or they wouldn't work or the people were unknowledgeable. And I was like, this is absurd. How do you work in a place? I remember having this distinct conversation with this woman, like, how do you work in a place and and, and distribute equipment for people with hearing loss? And you have no idea how it works. And you haven't even asked a question about it. Like it was mind boggling to me that somebody could be so clueless and so uncaring and yet it impacted another person's life. And I thought that's absurd. If you can't do this job, don't do it then. But you can't impact other people. And I was like so angry and furious that there was such a carelessness about people with disabilities. Like people just didn't care, not everybody, but like these particular people. And I just thought that's unacceptable. We would go and it would be almost like an argument every place we went with, why is the equipment not working? Why don't you know what access you have? Like, it should be a no brainer. It should be a page on the website. And this is going back a long time ago when I thought the website should be updated. This is, you know, back to 96 or 2002. And why isn't it on the website? Why is this information omitted? Why is there not at the time I remember thinking, okay, then have every person who communicates with a customer have a piece of paper that's laminated that had, you know, so it doesn't get destroyed. And so you can quickly pull out the file, have a 
I remember I used to say to people, there should be, I mean, so unnecessary now, which is really dating me, but there should be a binder behind the desk with the word access on the spine. So that if someone says, and with all the disability symbols, so that even if somebody is completely clueless and they have a question, they'll see the symbols and they'll go, oh, I wonder what's in that book, right? And I remember saying this way, even if they don't have a clue what they're reading, the person with the disability or the parent Mm -hmm. could look and go, okay, I can read this. I know what's here. Mm. But they didn't even have that. And so I just thought, well, this has to change. And so I went and started working. I was a stay-at-home mother. Mm-hmm. And so I, um, as my children started entering school, I had more time and I thought this will be my project. And I will start working on this and I'll work one museum, one theater at a time. And then I realized like at the beginning, you would do one and you would sit and wait and like, okay, where's the decision, right? <laughs> I better work on a lot, right? Like you're sitting here like this, like, okay, where's the decision? <laughs> and so I thought I better work on a lot. So I'm not like sitting by the phone waiting for decisions, right? So then I started working, like sending information and evaluating every single museum in New York City and then letting everybody know. And then like waiting for answers. So different museums would then come back at different points with different questions or they would drag their feet, I'd have to follow up. But by having so many places, right? Almost like a basket full of museums, as they each inched forward one at a time, like a little here, one would take a step forward, one would take a step back, right? And you're going, and the next thing you know, there would be this almost super effect of all of them hitting their stride all at once but that wasn't planned. It was more to keep me from like calling them every day by having a basket full of (laughs) museums because otherwise I would be calling like, okay, it's Wednesday. I spoke to you on Monday. Why isn't it done? (laughs) Right? (laughs) We're coming Saturday, right? Like how long does it take to fix this? Which frankly, I was surprised how long it took because the Americans with Disabilities Act almost implies that you call them up, you tell them what you need, right? You tell them what appropriate access or effective access you need, and they remedy the problem. Almost as if it was like turnkey, right? You tell them, they fix it, and by Saturday, you're at the museum. It doesn't work like that. It takes upwards of nine years for some of the projects. Taxis behind me took nine years. And so when you have this giant basket of museums, And then you expand because you ran out of museums in New York. So you start expanding to other states, right? (laughs) And you (laughs) create. And so I've started working on all of them. And then they all hit at the same time. Coincidentally, suddenly there's a success and the proof of concept. Interesting. It wasn't planned. It was more to keep me from calling them every day. (laughs) I would have. I would have called and said, okay, it's Wednesday. Where's the access? And it's very underestimated by the people who crafted EDA. It's a federally unfunded mandate. So there's no money to put in what they claim they want people put in. And there's no sheriff going around like the way they do with restaurants. I don't know where you are, but in many cities, you have restaurants with valuations of cleanliness and health guidelines from A A to fail. Mm -hmm. There is nobody like that for disability access. And there's also a place of public accommodation receives money from the federal government, right? And even the stimulus funds, by the way, carve out that by receiving stimulus funds, this does not count as receiving funds from the ADA. I checked because I thought this would be a golden opportunity, but it doesn't, (laughs) right? How great would it be? Well, you didn't receive funds before, you do now. 
but that's carved out. So unless a place receives federally federal funds, there's no timeline to enforce this compliance. So why not just drag it out until someone files a Department of Justice complaint? That's time consuming. And like, I assume by now this is like a huge FBI file on me for filing Department of Justice complaints, right? But is that really what you want? Right. And that's the problem, right? That's what people with disabilities are saddled with. Right. That's, I mean, it's so unfortunate that it takes so much time for change, you know, because I think of the ADA and I think of all these different accessibility options and everything that's been embedded into our system. And like, you know, I'm thinking because I'm not someone with disabilities, I'm thinking, oh, it's being taken care of. And then when I hear this, I'm like, oh my gosh, like it's actually not nine years Nine years. And what's really crazy is unlike like the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. So if you have a problem with the bank or credit card, right? Yeah. There's this amazing agency set up by Senator Warren, the Consumer Financial Protection Agency, the CFPB. And you go online and you fill out a very simple form. It's like a no brainer. And you hit send. And then whoever the correct institution is, right? You telling them the institution they send the complaint to that institution and there's a timeline of when the institution has, the credit card company has to respond, right? Mm -hmm. And if it's, let's say it turns out it's your mortgage and you complain to the CFPB and they don't handle mortgages, they sent it to the appropriate agency with a request to respond, right? That's marvelous. It works like amazing. There is no centralized agency like that. That's one of my goals. When you ask me, we'll talk about that, but that's one of my goals. But there is no centralized agency for that. And there's this network of overlapping agencies. So for example, if you have, let's say a wheelchair, right? And you're going on a plane and somewhere between getting on the plane and the airport, your wheelchair is lost, right? For the average person, do they know, do they contact the airline, the Department of Transportation, the FAA, the airport? Who is the correct place to follow up with that? And if you correct contact, let's say the airline, which would probably be the first place to start. Like if they don't respond appropriately and you want to complain now, now who is it that you complain? Are you complaining against the airport or the airline because you're caught in this crevice between the two of who takes responsibility? And then which is the right agency? And how do you complain? Like there's no online form that makes it so simple. Hmm. And it's not so simple. And it's not just, that, right, that one thing. This isn't like, okay, so if you travel, right, and you your luggage is lost, you have this isolated incident, a luggage lost, and hopefully it's a one-time thing and they find it, right, and you're good to go, and it doesn't affect your life. But for example, if you lose your wheelchair, you can't move if you need a wheelchair. And this is a regular occurrence. And so then it's like, okay, where do you do it? So now there's put into a, implemented things for the wheelchair, but for hearing access, there is no access. So every time you go someplace, if there's a problem, how do you complain? Who do you complain to? How do you get their attention? So for example, I've had an issue with the Smithsonian that's gone on now for 15 years. That's crazy, right? Now this is our nation's jewel of a museum. Best me, right? Right? But you would consider right. the nation's museum. Yeah. They don't have effective hearing access and they don't seem to care. And if you file, there's two agencies. If you complain, it turns out they don't have oversight. And you're like, what do you mean you don't have oversight? No, it turns out the Department of Justice is not. They are a quasi-federal institution. So you need to complain to the only oversight over the Smithsonian is the Appropriations Committee in Congress. 
So now I have to go to Congress, to the Appropriations Committee. Now, I found this out after 12 years of complaining. No. That's crazy, right? I finally filed the Department of Justice complaint. I wrote an article about it for a Huff Post. Now I have to go to the Appropriations Committee. Don't do that when there's a transition wow. because you, I need a more amenable Appropriations Committee. And so you got to wait. Now imagine if you're a child who's going on a school trip, like my daughter was. Her school trip was nine years ago and it wasn't fixed in time. It will be one day. That's crazy. I cannot, I can't believe it. That's just so insane to me. And then to wait 12 years for an answer to be like, and another thing that as you were speaking, I'm thinking about it and I'm like, well, you know, it's one thing to create something, right? And to have these agencies, but like you really need to enforce, right? Because otherwise who's really going to comply, right? Like you were saying, somebody should be held accountable for these types of situations because it's not right. Right. And then like, there's nobody to respond to, nobody to enforce it. Nobody, how do you expect to make change if you can't enforce it? Right. Because people aren't going to do what they're supposed to do if it's not enforced. Right. Or if it's not mandated or anything like that, if they just see it as an extra means of something else that they have to do on top of their workload, they're going to be like, ah, whatever, you know, which is so unfortunate, but it's like, like, I cannot believe that this is something that this has kind of been left by the wayside and not addressed appropriately, especially with something like the Smithsonian, like that's nuts. I'm it's like, really, really nuts about the Smithsonian. And yeah. what's really crazy is, I mean, it's mandated. It's just not enforced and implemented, right? So there's just almost nothing you can do except file complaints and file and just be that person who's constantly, but that's time consuming, exhausting, right? And the average person is not going to do this because who wants that to, be? it becomes like almost you become, quote, a professional complainer. And so really it's a change of words, right? You could take advocate to, and that really an advocate is a professional complainer, right? And it's the <laughs> same thing. So I call myself a professional complainer, but <laughs> even if you do, you have to figure out how to get people to listen and how to find that right person who is going to make that change you want. Right. And sometimes it means being a gadfly, right? Which is annoying. And sometimes it's filing complaints. Sometimes it's using creative solutions like writing articles. Some people seem impervious to articles. They don't seem to care like the Smithsonian. So you find more creative solutions to figure out how to solve this. And then you hope for the right administration, which I'm hoping we have now that will resolve this. But it's crazy. And we're between appropriations committees. So I have to sit and wait. But it's also then for me, like getting things ready. So it's already in the pipeline. So I've already done that. Like they are, the appropriations committee already has the papers. It's okay. languishing. The new person comes in and then I can complain. It's been sitting around for six months. Right. <laughs> That's awesome. Wow. So, so it's been a journey. So now it's been 15 years that you've been actively, how, how long? Has 18. It been? 18. Wow. Since 2002. Wow. And so what, can you give me sort of a sequence of events of like what you've worked on throughout that and sort of where you're, where you're heading now, what the goal is now, even though you told me a little bit, but we'll get into it a little bit deeper. <laughs> so it's, it hasn't been so much a sequence of events because as I said, I had this basket full of museums. So some museums, it really comes from the top, you know, like they say the fish rots from the head and mm. that's really true because some people understand it. And, you know, I can think of like a handful of projects where people got it from almost instantaneous and it resolved quickly, while others 
like the Smithsonian 15 years. So one, it's amazing. And I have never been able to figure out what is it that makes one person hear me and another person ignore me. And I realize it's, uh, for the most part, it has to do with their own personal life journey. Mm. That if they have some exposure or some way didn't walk between the raindrops, they mm. get it. And people who think that they have some force field around them, their life is perfect, and they don't have to think about any other human being like they're fully narcissist, they don't get it. And if you're stuck dealing with that person, it's going to be much harder than the person who gets it. So there was four who got it instantaneously were dramatic projects that I was able to change very quickly because they got it. So one of them was Maxine Clark from Build-A-Bear Workshop. Hmm. I approached her about adding hearing aids to bears. Hmm. And literally she said, yes, in two minutes. And I said, don't you care about the cost? And she said, no, it's the right thing to do. And I was like, okay, that's amazing. And I had, you know, my family's temple. Oh, I should say five. Um, The rabbi. Also, immediately, yes. What's the cost? I don't care. Amazing. Then there was meeting Richard Branson at Davos and asking for captions on in-flight entertainment. And he had me work with his team and they just implemented. And like, it was like done. They can't do it for the old systems because they're not going to rip out all the systems. But for any new system they purchased, they agreed. I thought that was very fair, right? Because it made the cost more amenable. And so new systems that were being implemented, the new and in-flight entertainments had captions and then Delta followed. They also said yes immediately. Actually the number, there's more than I think about as I think about it, but Delta said yes immediately. And then the U.S. Department of Transportation mandated it for flights emanating, departing from the U.S. And now that's why when you see, you know, you're on a plane, if you ever go on a plane again, you see captions on movies now, right? Yes. And that's from that. And what's amazing is it benefits people even without a hearing loss because you don't have to raise the volume so high when you can't hear when you're watching a movie over the airplane noise and you can catch that sound. So it also allows people to lower the volume on their in-flight entertainment to avoid disturbing the person adjacent to you, which is a win-win. So that was another one. And then another easy convincing was Howard Roberts from the New York City Transit Authority. When he took office, his predecessor, Peter Calico, was also uh, quite remarkable. But when he took office, it was a short meeting. Then he had me back and he's added the induction loops for people with hearing loss to the subway information booths and call box. And he said, it's going to take a little while, but it's going to be part of this thing called an Obama stimulus project, which I didn't even know what that was at the time. And he's like, but this way, we already piloted the project and it was shove, quote, shovel ready. And he's like, this is a perfect project for it. And it was like, okay. And like, then it was done. Wow. So you don't know. It's sometimes like in that case, approaching someone where you convince them to pilot, just get them to do one, right? Or two or four, or whatever it is for a pilot. And then these funds became available, which you can't possibly anticipate that it was the perfect project for the transit authority to do. And so it was ready and it was perfect. And if you have the right leader, and as Howard always said to me, leaders lead. His predecessor was a nightmare, Thomas Pantagrass. He said that he didn't have the right to do that. And he blocked access everywhere. And I remember saying to him, well, Howard's theory was leaders lead. And, you know, Thomas Pendergrass didn't feel the same way. Thank God he's gone. 
but he was a nightmare and he blocked access. You know, when you have somebody who's like that and it's very difficult to go around them, you have to sometimes wait it out. Eventually they leave. Wow. So these are massive changes that you've created, literally, that just because you asked, like the power of one, right? Because sometimes people think, right? How can I make such a difference in the world? How can I impact in the world? And hearing your story, right? And these amazing things, Richard Branson, Delta, like going on a flight and you can see the captions. Like, I mean, I recall seeing that and I'm like, I actually like subtitles. I'm like, I'd rather like kind of almost read them out because you just never know, right? And to me, to know that that came, that change came from one person being willing to stand up and be like, this is what's right. Is just so powerful to me. I just think you're so incredible. You had the courage to step up and be like, you know what? No, this is not cool. This is not right. Let's implement something that makes sense for everybody. Let's create access for everybody. And I just find it, I'm just in awe of you. That's all. <laughs> and oh, I just- well, thank you. But you know, what's great about all those projects, all four of them occurred because they literally didn't take a lot of work. They yeah. just took someone asking and yeah. people didn't know. And so if you don't ask the question, you start with a no and it can only turn into a yes. And sometimes you have to, people will say, well, I don't know these type of people. Well, I didn't know them either, but it doesn't take much to get to know someone. So now let me tell you how I met each of these people. Mm. So Maxine Clark was opening her flagship store on Fifth Avenue and I coincidentally happened to be there. And then I asked when the CEO was coming and they said, shortly. So I sat and waited with my son. What makes her so incredible is she was opening a flagship store and I'm asking her this, like she was a little busy that day. And she's <laughs> just this remarkable woman who just got it, right? But if I didn't ask, it wouldn't have happened. And it became, mm-hmm. Build Bear became the first mainstream toy to add hearing aids to its product line, which is incredible. So I just happened to be in the store. But if you see an opening of a store, uh, like a flagship store, or a major store in your neighborhood, and you have something like that, or any company, right? Assume the head of the company is going to be there. Google them to get an image of what they look like so you know who they are, and then you can ask them and you approach them. Don't look like a stalker human being, you know, dress appropriately (laughs) so you don't look scary, you know? (laughs) Don't look like you're, you know, the Unabomber, but if you look presentable, people will listen. So that was the first one. Richard Branson, that was a little more difficult. A friend invited me to Davos. So that was a little more complicated. But again, he could be at another event. Then there was Howard Roberts. That was a very funny story. So Howard's predecessor was Peter Calico. And coincidentally, we used a few different housekeepers the same. And I used to call his assistant for references on his housekeepers. And I got to know her. And so a funny <laughs> a couple of people that I interviewed, I asked her, I said, if I could get an appointment with him. So we had gotten to know each other over a period of years. I happened to like the people he terminated. They were well-trained. He didn't like them, but they were perfect in my house. And this was over a number, a number of years. It wasn't like, one <laughs> but I got to know her. I said, hi, I'm calling for a new reference. So she slotted me in with a meeting with him. When he left, then I followed up with his predecessor. But like, so using some sort of even tangential introduction, right? You can meet people like that, right? Everybody's like one person away from another. My temple was easy because that was, you know, going to the temple head. But it's, people may think, you know, it's hard to meet people. It's not so hard. 
in this day of the internet, you can reach out to anyone. You just have to not be afraid or intimidated by people because they're regular people and create a very succinct message with an ask and a solution, mm. right? Because if you just complain, it's a rant and, and that's unproductive. But if you provide a solution that's turnkey as possible, it's more likely to be implemented. That's amazing. I just love that you broke it down. You're like, hey, here's how I met them. Like, you know, because I really did, you know, so many people come to me and they're like, Pam, you know, I want to do this. I want to do this. And I don't know how to go about it. And I don't know if it's going to make a difference. But it's like, look at how practical you just made it. Like, hey, everyone's one degree away. You just ask. You find where the person is or you found information on them. Or maybe you know them through your network already and ask for an introduction. But change can be made. I just think it's so powerful. As long as you have the willingness, right? You had the willingness. You have to also be willing to walk through doors. I don't like transactional friendships where I feel like someone is my friend because they have a, a hidden motive of what they want to get from me. And I presume other people don't like that either because it's off-putting, yeah. right? But if you go through life with a general interest in other people and you keep walking through doors, you don't know which door is going to meet. So this is a very funny story where I'm at a friend's party and I'm talking and, you know, ready to leave and go home. And as I'm leaving, I go to say goodbye to my friend and she's talking with another couple. And it turns out he's the editor in chief of this publication called Multi-Channel News, which was the industry publication at the time for television broadcasting. And I'm complaining to him or telling him a story. You see, complain or telling, same thing, but it's all <laughs> how you phrase it. I'm telling him about the problems with captions on television. And he says to me, you should write an op-ed for that. And I said, funny you should mention that. I already have it written. And I had been had this written because I had been pitching it to publications like the Times, Washington Post, the LA Times, and I couldn't get anyone to publish it. He wow. said, send it to me. I did, and he published it. So here is this random encounter as I'm exiting a party where I met him and I had my article published, which also added to, sometimes it's not so much that it solves the problem, but it adds to your credibility to have such a well-regarded publication print your op-ed, right? So then when I'm meeting with the FCC commission, I present them the article. And even that, when I entered the, I was very upset about the quality of captions on television. I kept writing letters to the chairman of the FCC. Um, at the time, it was Powell. And it turned out there was this consumer advisory committee. So I applied and I was declined. So I was really annoyed because there was nobody on the committee with a child. So you don't even take no as a no. That's just a starting point for, it could be a maybe, right? So he left and I decided the new chairman may have a different opinion because he appointed the people to the committee as he was departing that maybe the new chairman would be upset by that and would add new people. And I was correct. I was appointed to the committee and so were other people because he augmented the committee. He didn't want mm. Powell's people to the committee. So Chairman Martin added me to the committee. And so I was on that committee for two terms. From meeting those incredible people and understanding the system and by being on the committee, I learned what the hurdles were for captioning standards was able to solve those hurdles. And then I learned what the problems were with buying a cell phone and I could solve those problems. And I continue to work on different issues now with hearing aid compatibility for cell phones. 
based on my information and the contacts I made in that and just by listening to people. And sometimes you may not even know that what that information is going to do, but it connects up to information as you learn more information. So it's okay. continuously to walk through doors. Right. Walk through doors. You just don't know where it's going to lead you. One introduction will lead you to the next. And it's, you know, you're just not aware of who can help you. Right. I just find it remarkable that you were able to create such massive change just by the power of ask. Right. And I tell everyone, because one of my biggest phrases and one of my biggest personal beliefs is one light can light up a whole room. All you need is one. And you can see that light. Otherwise it's just pure darkness. Right. And that is exactly, you have been that light in the community. And hearing loss, especially, but I mean, I think you're advocating for all disabilities and what you're doing for sure. I mean, I know you're focusing primarily on the hearing loss. I just think it's so powerful. And I'm just thankful that you just kept going and you didn't stop, even though it was years and it was a process and this and that and so many hoops and red tape and all that stuff. But you just kept going. You kept committing and like, look at what happened because you stayed resilient. Right. And you kept going. You became an advocate. And you continue to. So what's the latest goal, what you're doing? I know you mentioned it a little bit earlier, but in detail, sort of what's next? Because you've done, made all these massive shifts. So now I can only imagine what's, what's coming next for you. Well, thank you for your really gracious words. I will say having this basket full of projects helps that. So when one doesn't go well, but you're making progress on the other, it helps because you just like, okay, whatever. I can't, I'll put that one to the side and I'll continue working where I'm having movement. And if only focusing on one, then that one takes on an unbelievable significance, which you need to minimize. Kind of like the way the market goes, right? Like the stock market. If you have only one stock, that up and down is a big problem. But if you have a lot of stocks, it kind of evens it out. That's the same with projects for advocacy. If you have a lot, it makes the negative, not so upsetting when it doesn't go well. So one of my projects for the future, you know, these, I have grand projects and then I have small projects, right? The grand project is definitely to create a CFPB of, for disabilities. And yes, my goal is, well, I may start with hearing loss. My goal is to bring all the disabilities. That may be where we start the conversation, but the whole conversation is about disabilities in general. And I don't want it to be only about hearing access. It's about all disabilities. So I want a centralized place for complaints. It's to me too unmanageable. I think it's going to save the government money because each time an agency has to respond to a non-compliant, you know, a complaint that's not their agency, they have to dig research. They have to spend time on it. It wastes time on the government's part as well as the individual submitting it. And I think that's problematic. If there's one centralized place, it'll save everybody money and also see where the, which agency is really problematic, who's not complying because the government should want to know. We don't want to have agencies not comply with laws. That's problematic. Otherwise, what's the point of having them? I'm hoping with the new administration, we're going to finalize. I was on the federal rail, but as the new administration is coming in, we have some legislation that's still pending for the rail and passenger vessels. Mm. And I was on both of those federal committees under the U.S. Access Board. So I would like to see the finalization of that. On the day-to-day problems I'm working on, my goal is to expand access across the U.S. So I've worked now in 15 states, and my goal is to reach all 50 states. Wow. Because if we can create one model of excellence in every state, then those can be the models to roll out the access for the rest of the state. 
And so we just need one significant museum or business. So I'm trying to work with either corporations who are going to spread the access themselves. And one company that I'm in conversations with now is hopefully going to, it sounds like it's going to move that way. So if let's say, for example, and I'm making up numbers, they have a thousand stores, right? And if they have a thousand stores across the United States, then, and they add that access, think about in each community where that store is, they're introducing this induction loop that allows a person with hearing loss to hear the sound directly in their hearing aid, which is how the induction loop on the taxi works. And so that blocks out background noise. So they can go into that store and hear. So once they get accustomed to hearing in that store, right, then imagine they're going to expect it in their museum, their theater, their supermarket, their pharmacy, and it will roll out. And so I'm looking for to work with one company that is going to roll it out across the store. And the more of those type of companies that I can have. So what happens is it almost becomes like a layered effect across the United States. Like yeah. you have one store company with a thousand stores, another, let's say with another thousand and you're getting into multiple markets, yep. then it connects almost like a web and then it becomes the norm. And that's my goal. That's incredible. I know you're going to get there without a doubt. You're going to get to all 50 states and you're going to kill it. And it's going to be incredible. Just look at how far you've come, you know, and all the change that you've created thus far. And I just think it's, I think it's remarkable. And I mean, your source of inspiration, I know, I'm sure is your daughter. Did you have any other sources of inspiration you know, throughout your journey in life? It wasn't so much my sources of inspiration. Really interesting is I look to other, and by the way, uh, just on a footnote, on the stores, Apple has the access in all their locations. They just don't have signs up, which is preposterous. And my goal is to get those signs. They don't like signage. That's mm -hmm. none Apple signage. And my goal is to get those signs in all the stores because it's absolutely absurd. And so that's another project is to get those signs up. And if I necessary, I will address it. But that, because that will also help create the network. My inspiration has come from incredible change makers. So there hasn't been really anyone in the disability community that has been that dramatic of a change maker since Helen Keller, which, who was born in 1880, which is kind of ridiculous. Wow. So I look to other advocacy areas. And I've always said this has been my strength. I think the disability world has been very siloed within how they advocate. And so I will go to lectures, and this is something everyone can do who really wants to affect change. I go to lectures on every topic under the sun. The key for me is not what they're talking about, but who they are. I went to a lecture in John Hopkins on sex trafficking. I went to climate change where Jeffrey Sachs from the Earth Institute spoke. I will go literally on every single topic. I race relations where I heard Congressman John Lewis speak. Each one of these topics are from incredible people who were able to affect significant change in their area. It doesn't really matter what the topic is. It really matters is how did they do it? So each of these lectures provided me a saliable or thing that I learned. So for example, John Lewis, I asked him, and I always ask, how do I affect change? Mm. So John Lewis said to me that he said, you have to make people uncomfortable. And that's a very uncomfortable thing to do, but he's 100% right. 
And it's true. But every time I'm about to do something that gives you that pit in the stomach, I remember the congressman's words to me. And Frederick Douglass really said something very similar of change doesn't happen without a struggle, which was a quote I was about to attribute to John Lewis. But it's the same thing. You have to make people uncomfortable because it's never going to be comfortable for change. You want someone to do something they don't want to do. Sometimes you have to push the envelope. By going to the climate change lecture, I spoke to Jeffrey Sachs about how to implement change for people with hearing loss. And he said to me, create a model of excellence in New York where you're based and then roll it out across the country. That formed the whole basis of my program because he was right. I could really make significant change because I was here and then use those museums or theaters to leverage change across the country. And so that's what I did. At the sex trafficking conference in Hopkins, I met the former general counsel for Mayor Bloomberg there, who became a friend who then helped me on different projects. So she was attending and I wouldn't have met her if I didn't go to Baltimore. And then I was, had the opportunity to ride the Amtrak back with her and really get to know her as a person. And we became friends and she was able to help me. And so that's so random, right? To go to a sex trafficking conference about disabilities. But over and over again, I have met incredible people because anyone who attends these conferences for the most part is going to be a smart, interesting person. Mm -hmm. They're engaged. And the goal is to meet engaged, smart people because they will know how to help. And everybody in their own community has these various conferences. There's always somebody who's peddling their book, right? Right. Or the local library, the university. And I try to go to events where there's an opportunity to meet the person, not these massive stadium events. Those to me are pointless. You might as well listen to a podcast, much cheaper, right? Because <laughs> you can't speak to the person. My goal is to attend any event where I can speak to the person before or after. I always arrive early. The person is a little nervous. They're looking for someone to calm them down before they're about to speak. They're looking for a connection in the audience that they can look at during the audience. They mm -hmm. will remember you if you are that connection. These are brilliant pieces of advice too. Like how do you create change and by surrounding yourself with people who have the same endeavor, right? Even though they were in completely different worlds, like you said, right? Sex trafficking, but still you have the same theme and the same pattern. So I, I find that brilliant. I find that absolutely brilliant. And also to get there early because yeah, they will remember you as they're practicing on stage and they don't see many people, but they see you having that. And they're talking to you beforehand. And sometimes they're, if you get there, they're looking for someone to talk to. And so I'm happy to be that person to speak with them. Afterwards, everybody's lining up, but very right. few people arrive early. I always arrive early. That's brilliant advice. And then I have my last question for you, which is, what would your older self tell your younger self based on what you know now through your life experiences? It sounds trite, but don't sweat the small stuff. Mm. It all seems to work out. I always thought in life, there was a golden path. You go to high school, you go to the right college, you graduate, you get the right job, you get married, you have children, you know, like basically let that line. Life is not like that. There are ups and downs, huge ups, huge downs. And just kind of know that if you lead your life with integrity, it does work out. And, and you can lose everything, but never lose your integrity because that is the only thing no one can take away from you. You can only give it up. And now 
if you could share where everybody can find you, Janice, and your awesomeness and, you know, so they can catch up with you on what you're doing next or how they can support you. I have two websites. I have my professional website for consulting. That's hearingaccess.com. And I consult with companies, government agencies, and people. And that's through hearingaccess.com. My advocacy site is my name, JaniceLintz.com. And I'd love to hear from people. I love meeting people who want to affect change. I love it. I love it. Janice, thank you so much for being here today. You're so powerful and remarkable. And I can't wait to see the work that you're doing come to light all of your goals and having the agency and everything like that. So I'm so excited for you and the future. Thank you so much for having me, Pamela. This has been so much fun. I really appreciate it. The only dream that I've been chasing is my own. So that's it for today's episode of Underdog. Head on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show. One lucky listener every single week that posts a review on iTunes will win a chance in the grand prize drawing to win a private VIP day with Pamela herself in Boston, Massachusetts. Be sure to go to theunderdogshow.com and pick up a copy of Pamela's free gift and join us on the next episode. Oh,